As we continue David's series, today we're on 2 Samuel chapter 9. And 2 Samuel chapter 9 is a very simple story, only 13 verses compared to long chapters. And it happens to be one of my favorite stories. And there's just something about this story that hits home beyond the hardness or uh, intellectual side of trying to analyze the passage. It, the scripture touches the inner core where uh, depth of our hearts need to be touched. It is a story about David and Mephibosheth. Um, there is some background that will help us to understand the story better and as well as, once again, to discern what to look for in this story, knowing that the true main character of the biblical narratives is God himself. Here's number one. It was one of the high points of David's life. At the peak of golden era of Israelites. And David's kingdom happens to be that, and Solomon as well. But in, in looking at David's life, there is a crescendo in chapter 9 and chapter 10. chapter, And then all of a sudden, chap, starting chapter 11, there's a descent. Failure and heartache going on. But this is definitely one of the high points. Last week, we learned that God made a covenant with David. When David asking, Could I build a temple, permanent place for you, Lord? Because I'm living in this mansion, the house made of cedar. But you are still in tent. And then God actually saying, no, I will make house for you. Your son Solomon will build a temple, but I will make house for you. Your throne and your house in endure forever and endeavor. Obvious, this is a messianic uh, prophecy. And the, Dave, the Davidic co covenant was a glorious blessing. We saw that. And one of the results of that covenant is chapter 8. We're skipping that chapter. The stories of victory, military victories against not only the Philistine, Moab, and many other surrounding nations who used to be threat, big threat, including Syrians. And at this time, the story sets in. David is asking another question. Secondly, it was an unprecedented incident. So contemporary people might not realize the impact of the, what David's doing in this story. But customary tradition of any new king coming is that it was known fact they will sweep out and alienate it, just massacring all the descendants, household, even sometimes servants, loyal people of prior kingdom, prior dynasty. David actually did the opposite. Um, thirdly, it was a result of a covenant between two friends during David's difficult time when he was fleeing and running, uh, running for his life away from Saul's malicious attempt to kill him. His friend Jonathan and David, in tears, made this covenant. 
And David actually, years later, remembered that. Once again, covenant in short, our relevant language to us is a promise. And we live in a you know, world that promises just almost nothing. Politicians promise so many things, but we don't even expect the politicians to follow through. Our spouses make promises. Our parents, our children make promises. Our coworkers, our bosses make promises. But David intends to keep his promise with his dear friend Jonathan. And there are several uh, incidents that they will actually renew covenants, their covenants over and over. First Samuel, this is one of them, probably the primary. Uh, depiction of their covenant. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 through 16, and verse 42. Jonathan is speaking to David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of this earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Remember, Jonathan is a son, the first son of King Saul, who is malicious, who was maliciously attempting to kill David. And which meant Jonathan was supposed to be the next king. And he saw God's sovereign plan and he was gladly and freely. Instead of Saul's jealousy, he chose submission to God's sovereign will and said, you will be the king. I'll I'll be next to you. And in case if I'm still alive, would you make sure that you will show steadfast love, not only to me, to my descendants, my offsprings as well? In verse 42, the renewal happens again. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. That was years ago. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, was only five years old. Now he's a grown man. David remembered. And lastly, this story portrays a picture of God's covenantal love. And then you might want to remember this word. The Hebrew word for that is chesed. H-E-S-E-D. Sometimes it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D. Why? Because we don't have that pronunciation of ch sound. Like a bach kind of thing, right? So the chesed is there. Chesed is a combination of Love and loyalty or commitment. So we don't have a one single word to describe it. So many different translations have different expressions. ESV typically uses steadfast love. Hesed equals steadfast love. Or NIV will use loving kindness. Or mercy. Or kindness. And if you look at looking for those, that specific word, even though other words are replaced, it's everywhere in the Old Testament. The New Testament, we have a word agape, right? All, always referring to God and God's unconditional love. And this hesed has a special meaning for covenantal love, which means God made a covenant, he will keep 
his promises no matter what, and his love flows out of his covenant, regardless our fickleness, our unfaithfulness, our doubts. That's why this is an incredible, profound story. And it is not a moralistic teaching. So let's start with this story, begin with David's search. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for, for Jonathan's sake? That kindness, that word, is hesed. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? As you just heard, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, was crippled. How did, how did that happen? We already know the customary tradition of killing all the household and descendants of prior dynasty, right? So we know the tension of this story. If we go back to chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, chapter 4, verse 4, we learn how it happened. Jonathan, son of Saul, had son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old. When the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Zezreel, what news? That they died in the battlefield. And his nurse took him up and fled. As she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. At the news of King Saul and Jonathan is killed. They're killed at the battlefield. Panic happened. Fear. Why? Because it was everybody's knowledge that King Saul was jealous and crazy and just relentless on going after David to kill him. So now that King Saul and Jonathan's gone. What's going to happen to their household? In any minute, David and his soldiers will marching in to kill his descendants, Saul's descendants. So his nurse, I don't know how he dropped him, so severe that, that you know, crippled. And just think about it. Back then, there is no handicapped land, or it's not even politically correct to even call it handicapped land. It's some kind of a for disabled person, right? 
No wheelchair. Uh, Stephen, I, I could have been could have been good that you were there. Um, Stephen works with the the free wheelchair for people who need it. Um, can you imagine now that Mephibosheth is an adult? He he fled. Lodibar is the east side of Jordan River, which means far away from the main capital of Jerusalem. They're hiding out, basically. Uh, royalty. King's grandson is living in somebody's house. And there's knock on the door. David's men are looking for Mephibosheth. What would you feel? Uh, probably Mephibosheth is maybe this is the day that I will die. He wants to see me before he kills me. So he was not... Uh, Expecting anything like this. But in reality, what David showed was an incredible grace and mercy. I bet Mephibosheth is asking in his head, is this real? Is this really happening? It wasn't just a simple pardon that it was an invitation to sit at king's table day after day for the rest of his life to eat with his family. And let's remember that that David didn't show this kindness because Mephibosheth was crippled. He felt sorry for him but it was solely for Jonathan's sake. On the merit of Jonathan, Mephibosheth was not only spared, but shown hesed love, kindness. There are two things we should notice. That is, the first word, David's, out of David's mouth is Mephibosheth's first name. Mephibosheth. Now what's the big deal? Uh, he's a king and he's one of low people. He, you know, he's especially crippled. Okay. Even in our culture, impersonal way of calling people uh, what's your face, or you know that kind of thing, right? Whatever your name is, or what's your son, what's your name, or they will they will say something like so and so's, hey Jonathan's son, or the nickname like a hey, you cripple, or lame, personal name. And did you notice that throughout the story, uh, we will. Look at the rest of the chapter. David mentions his personal name over and over. And another thing that he repeats is actually the specifics of his kindness. So that he knows that it is not a gesture, a wordplay, that he means it. Let's read the rest of the chapter. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziva, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to his household I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your grandsons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, 
your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. Now Ziva had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziva said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. When David showed Hesed God's kindness to him, it wasn't conditional, it wasn't calculated way, it wasn't in a very minimal way, it was boundless. Sometimes we do that, right? So in, in our in modern way of showing generosity or uh, hospitality to people who are visiting our, our home, just to make sure that he or she is comfortable. And there's the expression is, my house is your house. Mi casa es su casa. But that expression, it's, it's not like, a, okay, go through every, every room and you could open anything and just go at it. We don't do that. But there is a boundlessness of his kindness. And the New Testament, glimpses of New Testament's grace, the... the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. This is a gospel chapter. Apostle Paul calls chapter, Romans chapter 8, adoption. We're called the sons of God. We're enemies, used to be enemies of God. Now we are of the Holy Spirit. We, Holy Spirit urges us, teaches us to call the Father Abba. You are one of my son. And the two things that we should notice for sure is Mephibosheth's humbling himself was a proper response to Hesed love. So we saw that David's response to God's sovereign grace that he, he said it's about time somebody noticed. Right? Who am I, Lord, that you will show? It's a mind-boggling thing. And the people said, it was, it's not a gesture. Like, What is that? What am I that you would treat with such a regard? He calls himself dead dog. Which is, in customary tradition, that's a right perspective, is it? Anyone who was a prior kingdom, prior dynasty's son, still living, is a dead dog. Andrew Murray writes in his uh, devotion, the grace of God flows always downward, not upward. So when we, when Holy Spirit finds us abased, and lo, we humble ourselves, broken before God, the grace of God starts flowing in. This is truly a grace. 
that we would see ourselves from God's perspective. We're not trying to humble, be humble. Oh, I guess in light of the Almighty God, I need to humble myself. No, from God's point of view, God's holiness, God's wrath, what I deserve is hell. What I deserve is God's justice. But instead of God giving me justice, he treats me with non-justice, which is mercy, which is different than from, from injustice. That you would treat me with non-justice, mercy. The second thing we should notice, once again, I'm repeating myself here, that David's kindness, David's headset love for him was boundless. To have him, not just one time, Tonight you will sit at my table, but tomorrow go back to Lodibar. Always you will eat at my table. And I'm sure in um, chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth shows up again, that we'll able to visit and and 21 also too, but um, let me just mention quickly. Fast forward the tape. David's own son, Absalom, revolted against David and took over the throne. David had to fled, and then David finally coming back. Absalom is killed by Joab. And then Mephibosheth greets him. His hair never trimmed. His beard never trimmed. His clothes never been changed. And he said, how could I when my Lord hasn't come back? And his uh, member Ziva uh, had some cunning idea and he actually talked bad about the people shed. And then when David finally came back, he realized that was a lie. But David's generosity and grace was there. Instead of taking everything from Ziba, he said, uh, whatever belongs to Saul, divide it into two. Divide with, between Ziba and you. And Mephibosheth's response is just incredible. Oh, let him have it all. Once again, this is not a gesture. Let him have all. All the land. And now that you came back, that's what that matter, What matters to me. One who is shocked by grace can act radically. And that was Mephibosheth. So if we draw a moralistic lesson, let's be nice to people who are going through a tough time. That's, that's about it. That it will cheapen the message of Scripture. This is a gospel message in the middle of, in the thick of uh, Old Testament narrative. Let's pay attention to the heart of God, the hesed love of God in three lessons. Here's number one. First, we need to see ourselves in Mephibosheth, who was estranged estranged from the king in misery. I'm intentionally capitalizing king because this is a... Uh, parallel in our relationship with God. What was his condition as he was far away from the king? Misery. Fear. And antagonism against the king. Maybe he was saying, if had it not be David's success, Success. I'm the only heir. I could have been king, but at the same time, now that he's king, I can't even go nearby him. 
He might kill me. He will kill me. So how do I just deal with anger? Antagonism was there. We were like that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, verse 13, Paul writes, Remember that you were at the, at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? Do you see, had it not for Jonathan, his miserable life would continue on that he was intentionally staying away from King David and no fellowship, no relationship, and then just the, his projection of what king might be, his angry, cruel, violent man. There is no way I could even have a relationship with God, I mean, relationship with David. Mephibosheth could live like that for the rest of his life in his crippleness. In his, in his brokenness of being crippled. When we were unbelievers, and at the same time, when still while we were believers, we could stay away from, stay clear away from God, thinking that if I go nearby him, he's going to punish me, He's going to tell me what I'm doing wrong. He's going to nitpick like a policeman waiting in the corner with a speed gun at me. The things that I enjoy, he's going to be literally cosmic killjoy. Tell me what not to do. All the things that I enjoy. But do you see, today is the day of grace because it's grace, because it, 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 is, it doesn't require for you to keep up hundreds of obeying the law to finally make you self-righteous, good enough to measure up. So before we get shocked by God's hesed love, we need to realize our low estate, our poverty in spirit, our depravity in sin, our waywardness from God. I, with all the gentleness that I could muster, my uh, pastoral fatherly heart, for those of you who are in the outskirts of spiritual life, you don't want to continue to walk away from God and then in fear of uh, you, you have uh, acknowledgement God exists and God is in charge. But then yet, you are living in a way that there's uh, uh, too much headache for me. I, I, too many things I have to give up. Or even in relationship, if God tells me what to do and if I really have to do, is yeah, it will be like experience of dying. How do I even submit to my husband? How do I submit to my wife and my authorities around? How do I, how do I really live with a pure heart? There's no way. And all of a sudden, we, we become comfortable 
in our own brokenness. And people who are going through recovery actually has that language also too. You know, in order for you to really come out of that recovery fully, you need to recover from the recovery process. You know, as long as you're in the, so comfortable going through the recovery process, it's more comfortable. For the depressed people, it's more comfortable to stay depressed. Suddenly, when you begin to see bright light and you want to hope it, there's a shock wave coming. Oh, something's going to go really bad. In the same way, I hear about joy of the Lord and I hear that God is merciful and God is, wants to bless me. Yes, I want to believe all that. But I think I'm more comfortable here. And my urge to you is that there is a simple hand, empty hand receiving. It's called faith. It is our responsibility. It is free, but you need to act on it. Trust God. I'm really um, glad there will be a promotion Sunday next Sunday so the kids will uh, go in, in church grade. They'll go up. And my son, who is a, used to be high school senior graduate, he's now in college. And starting next week, we gave him not only the permission, but encouragement to stay and sit in an adult service. Friday night, salt, he might go. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. And I think he wants it. And one of the most distinctive uh, encouragement that I heard during his testimony, by the way, the six kids who were baptized, they will share a crossway story this coming uh, next Sunday, starting next Sunday. Two crossway story for three Sundays in a row, all from youth. How exciting is that? Soren is scheduled to share his 24th. Let me, allow me before he comes in here, let me give you a preview. He said uh, everything was intangible, but he asked me for a book. I, I just initially thought that this is too much for you. His name is Soren. Uh, we got the name from, obviously, Danish philosopher, Christian thinker, Soren Kierkegaard. One of Soren Kierkegaard's famous book is Fear and Trembling. It's about, at young age, that, that's why he's really genius. He wrote a book about, about Abraham and Isaac, that experience. And then one of the sentences that caught Soren's heart was that, Faith is not something that always is grabbing conceptually, that you need to experience it. That experience takes a risk. It's my paraphrase. And Soren will share it in his own way. And he finally realized there is a crossing the line that's faith. We need to do that. Some of you today. I don't have all the answers. But I will have this morning holy discontent. I'll cross the line to experience your love and forgiveness. I don't know how, but here's my hand. Take my hand, Lord Jesus. Lead me on. Lesson number two, second, we need to see Jesus in Jonathan on whose merit Mephibosheth was accepted and shown kindness by the king. First um, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, God, righteousness, 
and sanctification and redemption. So what it means is that Mephibosheth's acceptance, God's acceptance, the king's acceptance and generosity and kindness was solely on Jonathan's merit. In the same way, when we come to Christ and come to God, we need to realize it is not our merit, but because of what Christ has done. He becomes our redemption. He becomes our sanctification. He becomes our righteousness that we are able to experience God's hesed. All of us have something uh, makes us to feel proud. Maybe some, some of you, it is your intellect. You're smart. And some of you, it, it is your ability to, to run business, to, to be efficient and effective at your, in your career. Some of you, you're just good intention. And some of you have a good looks. I give you that. <laughs> but is there anything? Is there anything you could bring to God and say, because of this, accept me. Because of this, I deserve it. Nothing. I mean, nothing can make us feel that deserving before God. Soon we will go through five Sola series. because of Reformation, the anniversary is coming in October, the 500-year anniversary. And then you will hear that more elaborate way that this um, amazing grace is a grace alone and Christ alone. Our acceptance before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because of what Christ has done. And it doesn't stop there. Lesson number, uh, let me. Lesson number three is about what to do about it. But in, in, in light of all this, as I am reading a few books alongside of, as you know, that, that one of the books I'm reading is Ellen Radpath, the book on David. We called it Making a, uh, Making a Leader. Fascinating book. And on this point, Ellen Radpath, I, I got to share this, writes this. I'm sure that very often as Mephibosheth sat down to eat at the king's table, he said to himself, I am not worthy of being so close to the king. When I think of how far away and resentful I have been, why should I be treated like this? Then the thought would come to him. But I am not here for my own sake. I'm here for my father Jonathan's sake. The man who has been brought back from waywardness and antagonism, who has been accepted by God on the merit of Jesus Christ and who has become aware of the abundance of his salvation and the glorious supply of God's grace toward him is often brought to say, but Lord, I am not worthy of this. If I got my just recompense, I would, I would be in hell judged by God, and sent to a lost eternity. I don't deserve these privileges, the joys of an open Bible and of an indwelling Christ. 
But as we see, as we sense our unworthiness almost to the point of despair, we are reminded that we are not receiving any of these blessings on our merit, but for Jesus' sake. We enjoy the abundance of our salvation and continued fellowship at the table of the King of Kings because God has sealed by the precious blood of his Son a covenant that has taken you within its scope to protect and keep you throughout the life, throughout life, and for all eternity. Isn't that just hit home for you? Last week we reflected on the fact that Jesus is central, central not only in our daily lives, in history of mankind. The true eternal reality hinges upon Jesus Christ. And that Jesus becomes our reason for acceptance. Solely on Jesus' sake, God accepts us. The third and last application is important. Third, we need to see God's compelling love in us so that we too can show God's kindness to the undeserving for Jesus' sake. There are a couple of verses that I'd like to share. The 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15, this time this is in NIV. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live who live, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So this same idea of living for Christ, the question is, what does it look like? What does he want? In Old Testament, uh, Prophet Micah gives us the answer, 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness. Hesed, again. Some other translation will be love, mercy. It's the same word. And to walk humbly with your God. So today, Maybe it is time for us to ask David's question. Is there still anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? We could ask the same question. Is there anyone around me to whom I could show God's hesed love for Jesus' sake? Yes, that person is not deserving, but because of Jesus' sake, I will forgive that person. Jesus' sake, I will show kindness that is boundless. And I think if we are honest about our daily lives, there is at least some person that come to our mind Well, that person is not necessarily Christian. That person is not necessarily reputable, noble person. But that you will actually disregard because of your compassion and kindness and mercy. Because it glorifies and pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. And our action as a church to, to respond to Hurricane Harvey's victim is one of those practical applications, I think. Regardless of our situation, regardless of 
some human problem, uh, the uh, scam going on and all the donation going on, all the some churches not doing well in helping out the helpless and there's a finger pointing going back and forth. But can we respond with hesed? My prayer for each one of us that we will start from us and then let it flow. Don't forget that. There is a line that we need to cross. Take a risk to humbly say, I need your headset. I will receive your boundless grace. Lord Jesus, you are my Jonathan. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are so thankful for your scripture because we see at your heart and your passion and your mercy in the middle of this story. And we pray, Lord, that, that we will not just uh, stop at the intellectual exercise of learning things. Help us to experience. Help us take risk to trust, to recklessly abandon ourselves into your hands. <coughs> Help us not to forget the amazing grace that we once saw when we come to know Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And I pray for revival for our church that your Hesed love will transform us. That we will be indeed the people of the Lord in doing justice to love kindness, to walk humbly with our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.